Welcome to Choosing Leadership, a podcast for high performers with big dreams and for leaders who know that they are more powerful than the level that they are currently playing. I am Sumit Gupta, your host and the founder CEO of the Deploy Yourself School of Leadership. I am here to help the best leaders get better and to help organizations massively improve their output and impact and at the same time eradicating workplace stress. Yes completely eradicating not just reducing completely eradicating i believe in creating a future and a work culture where people wait for mondays not fridays and get to do their most meaningful work the aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content but instead shift the context under which you operate this podcast is titled choosing leadership because that is what leadership is a choice In each episode I will celebrate leaders who have made such choices which are not always easy and comfortable but which has helped them get to where they are today. And let us celebrate the leader in us for choosing to move over our fears, for choosing to be motivated by something bigger than ourselves and for choosing to deal with every challenge that comes on the way. Let us celebrate you right now for stepping into the unknown and taking courageous action as those were the moments when you chose leadership at the end i will share how you can be our next guest on this podcast and with that let's get started seth is the founder and ceo of quantum ai and a globally recognized expert in ai in the interview he shares his insights on leadership in the age of ai he discussed how ai particularly generative ai can significantly enhance productivity by handling repetitive tasks allowing leaders to focus on more high value and creative work however he also emphasized the importance of embracing ai as a partner and not just a tool with generative ai's power to amplify human potential leaders must adapt and leverage this technology wisely to stay relevant in the future hi seth welcome to the choosing leadership podcast I assume it and thank for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Why don't you start by sharing a bit about who you are and what is it that you do today? Yeah, thanks. Uh so I'm Dr. Seth Dobrin. I'm the founder and CEO of an advisory firm called Quantum AI. I'm also the president of a nonprofit called AI IQ which is focused on increasing the IQ around AI for mm-hmm. people that are non-tech professionals. I am formerly IBM's first ever global chief AI officer, where I was responsible for AI across the whole of the company, as well as advising IBM's customers, which think the Fortune 1000, on what the best ways are to implement and execute AI. Uh, before that, I led Monsanto's uh, data and AI transformation, uh, where we generated more than $20 billion of new value and cost savings, leveraging the tools of data and AI. I'm also an advocate uh, and ally for diversity in tech so I spend a lot of my quote unquote free time uh working mm-hmm. with ad- advocacy organizations in that regards as well as some industry professional groups like the International Association of Privacy Professionals where I sit on their AI advisory panel. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that context and uh, can you share a bit of your back- background or your backstory? Like where do the dot connects uh, to AI and having your own firm right now? 
Yeah, so that's a really good question. So I'm actually uh, a human geneticist. So my training, my PhD is in uh, human uh, psychiatric genetics. But back in the time of the Human Genome Project, people might think that's weird that a geneticist is an AI now. But that was when really we started the big data era in two areas and two fields, genetics and astrophysics. And so in order to analyze my dissertation, I had to start using you know machine learning and big data. My dissertation between the images and the, the tabular data was about 100 gigabytes, which if you're in tech, that doesn't sound too big today, but think late 90s, early 2000s, mm. that was ridiculous. And hundreds, if not thousands of, of Excel files that would have amounted to just for the tabular data. Uh, and so I had to start learning some of the tools of the trade today. If you've ever talked to a data scientist, they either use Python or R. Those two tools were developed back then. Uh, so I used them pre-version one, taught myself how to code. I never took a coding class in my entire life. And, and then from there, uh, I started applying the same tools of massive lab automation. So for molecular analysis, as well as machine learning and data science to solve scientific problems from about late 90s until I went to Monsanto in 2006. There, I kept doing that for five years. So until 2011, I was focused entirely on solving scientific problems using those two skill sets. Mm -hmm. After we generated a lot of value for Monsanto in the product development pipeline, so in the research and development pipeline, I was asked to go over to the main part of the organization, so to the business side, and apply those same tools to solve business problems. And so that's where I made the leap from using large-scale automation and machine learning and data science to solve scientific problems to science solving business problems. And it was there that I first started to learn about the challenges of back then. It was, this was 2011, 2012. So shift to cloud, what that means for data, what that means for AI, moving from data, as I used to call as a digital dropping of, mm -hmm. of applications, which they build these applications, no consideration to data, to making data for class citizen which then enables you to do some real good machine learning and data science. And so that brought me to uh, IBM. So after five years of doing that, I wanted to go to a tech company to learn about other industries because I spent my almost my entire career in life sciences. Mm. And so I went to IBM to help transform them using those same tools, but also uh, help their customers and learn about those other industries. Uh, and after six years of doing that, I decided to go out on my own and apply what I've learned throughout my career, both at Monsanto at IBM and even before then, to help companies figure out how do we best leverage AI and generative AI? What are the right questions to ask? And how to do that in a human-focused and value-based way so that everything we do in that regard goes back to the business objectives of the organization as well as the people that are impacted in using the AI system. Hmm. Yeah. And when you talk about uh, IBM or when you talk about solving business problems, were those roles also leadership roles? Were you also responsible for directly leading uh, people in those organizations? Yeah. So in both those roles, I had large leadership roles, both for large groups of, of people, hundreds, mm. significant number of hundreds of people globally. But it, interestingly, the most I learned about leadership came at a time when I didn't have any direct report. So in 2011, when I moved from leading a group of hundreds of people around the world in their molecular breeding program, moving over to the main organization, they moved me over and I had no direct reports. Mm. And I said to the, the the guy who brought me over there, who was a friend of mine, I'm like, this sucks. I, this feels like a demotion to me. I went from managing hundreds of people 
around the world to no one. And he goes, no, you're thinking about this all wrong. His name was Stan Dotson. He's still a friend of mine. He says, no, you're thinking about this all wrong. You now have the entire company working for you. You just need to convince them that what you need to do is more important than everything, all the other priorities. Mm. And so I learned more about leadership in that year where I had no direct reports mm. than I have in my entire career before or since then. And that's carried over in, in, into even when I think about when I have direct reports, I don't manage them the same way I used to. I lead them. And that's mm. the difference between management and leadership is leadership is you're pulling people along with you. You're not pushing them. And you really give them a, a reason, a compelling reason why they need to help you and why your mission is important. And that enables you to do transformational change because transformational change usually requires more than just your team. It hmm. usually requires a lot more people across the whole company. So people ask me what my superpower is sometimes, and my superpower is leading through influence. Hmm. Can you share a bit more about that, especially your journey, right? So moving from, uh, let's say, a research-based uh, or a very technical leadership role, and then also then moving from research to business, and then moving from authority to influence, like leading from authority to leading from influence. Can you draw that out a little bit more in detail? Yeah. So I think leading scientific organizations and even leading change in scientific organizations has its own challenges and its own advantages, right? So in science, everyone understands the value of data, hmm. right? And But everyone also understands the power of data. And you don't have to, I didn't, when I was at Monsanto or even before then, I didn't have to spend a whole lot of time convincing people that data was important and we need to start thinking about it as a first class citizen. They already thought of that way. What was really hard was when we tried to create a central view of data, people are giving up their power because their data is their power. And this gets to the authority versus the first versus influence a little bit because you need to create a value proposition for them. You can do one of two things if you're in a top-down organization like IBM is a very top-down organization. Monsanto was not. Monsanto was a very bottoms up, middles out kind of organization. And so everything required a value proposition if you want people to change. And so needed to have a conversation, not about your data needs to be part of the centralized repository. You will use, this will be the, all the definitions and the canons and, and how, you know, all the metadata that will be required to look, if you give us this data, not only, and you make it part of this and you use these met this metadata as a bare source, bare minimum for this class of data, like geospatial data, for instance. The benefit to you is now you get all of the data that goes across the whole of the company and you can use that in your research. There is a line though. If you don't participate in this, you don't get access to it. And so I'm not going to let you have access to this data asset that I'm building unless you contribute to it. And so that was the value proposition. And that was where I started learning what the leading through leadership through, through influence really meant versus I'm your manager, you're, I'm a direct, you're a direct report of mine, or you're a direct report of one of my peers. Regardless of what I say, you're going to do it because you have to, not because you want to, mm. right? And, and that want to also creates a lot better outcomes, uh, but it also requires uh, a lot more, uh, there's a lot more responsibility that you have as a leader, especially when they're outside your organization. So for example, going back to Monsanto, there were some people in the lower parts of the organization that had wanted to do these from this transformation, this shift to cloud and the shift to data assets and microservices, all these things we take it for granted today, but it always been told no. Mm. And I had 
got a group of these people together. It was a tops down and bottom up motion, trying to that clay layer, that middle layer is the hardest to break through when you're trying to change that middle management. And so I had empowered a lot of these people at the lower levels to do things and really against the wishes of their upline managers. Uh, now I had the support of their senior managers that, that they had little to no contact with, but it was my responsibility when I worked with them to do this, that if they got in trouble, that I was there and I stood in the way. And so when you're leading through influence, this level, this sense of accountability that you have to, to, to people that you're trying to move with you or move, help move the organization, that is something you can't forget because that is really what enables you to make this change because people know you have their back. They know you, they can trust mm -hmm. you. The, and that is really the most important part of leading, leading through influence is that trust that you're in it with them, that you're there for them, that you're, that you are mm. accountable to them the way they're, when they're trying to help you. Yeah. Yeah. And for a lot of people, especially people coming from science and engineering or a very structured background, that can be a difficult transition because suddenly you're talking about intangibles like trust, which is like, you, you can't uh, convince people to trust you. It's something which they have to do or not do and do at their own time. So was this a difficult journey for you to, to transition into a different kind of a person also? So, yeah, so, so it was because actually I was always more of a, whether I wanted to admit it or not, I was always more of a command and control person and not mm. for the control type per reason, but because I wanted to move fast. And oftentimes the only way to move fast was just to decide for yourself. And so the, that was one big change of leadership I had to learn was how do I consult people or when do I consult people? When do I get consensus? And when do I use all of these different types of, of buy-in and, and how do I, maybe this isn't the right word. How do I manipulate those or take advantage of those to move the organization in the right direction? For instance, and manipulate probably too strong of a word, but mm. if I want to move a, a leadership team in a certain direction. I need that it to be them, their idea oftentimes. And so how do I direct the consensus mm. so that it gets to the somewhere close to where I want it to be, but with an open enough mind that if someone brings up a good point that I'm not so myopically focused on this end result that I don't adjust. And so being able to steer a leadership team, and I often tell people the best day you can have is when someone comes to you and tells you that your idea is their idea, it means you've won, mm. right? The only person that needs to know that it was your idea is your boss, right? The person who's signing your check and giving you your bonus. And so getting a group of people to think something is their idea and be very passionate about it is the most powerful tool you have in your arsenal when you're leading through influence. Yeah. And I think that brings me to AI, right? There's a lot of uh, hype, uh, I think very recently around AI and AI like really developing intelligence. But I want to contrast it to what we were just talking about, right? Some of those intangible elements like trust, like listening, like building consensus, which I would even say are like emotional issues, not, and goes beyond reason. So where do you see are the limits of AI? And where do you see that AI can actually make an impact in helping leaders become better, better, better leaders? And where can AI not come in? So I think the first, let's talk about trust. Right. And I think that's really important. And, and like you said, trust is a little bit intangible, but at the same time, it's somewhat tangible, right? You've had my back or not. That's very tangible. You asked me to do something. Someone didn't like what I did. You stepped in. 
you protected me, right? You were my shield in that instance because you asked me to do something. So when we talk about trust and we talk about AI, the first thing that comes to mind for me is jobs, mm. right? And this was true even with before generative AI, before the whole chat GPT thing, where people were always worried that AI was going to take their jobs. And in the net of it, so the net to the economy, I believe will be a positive generation of jobs. So I do not believe in the near term in the next or even midterm next 20 years, we're going to see a decrease in the total number of jobs. However, to maintain a sense of trust with the workforce and with society, we need to be honest that there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be out of jobs during that transition. And when we looked at old school AI, as I call it, so pre chat GPT era, yeah. right? Most of those jobs that were being displaced were lower skill, mm. lower income, uh, jobs. So call center jobs, manufacturing jobs, supply chain jobs, thing jobs like that. And, but we were not always honest with people about when their jobs are going to be impacted. So we said, we're going to bring this AI in. It's not going to impact your job, knowing full well that it was going to impact their jobs. When we're implementing any technology, we need to be very transparent. Look, this is going to impact your job. This skill is no longer going to be used in this company or it will be greatly reduced in the future. Once this is implemented, we will help you get the skills you need to either be successful in or out of this company. Right. And the same thing is true with generative AI. So with new school AI, the big difference is it's not low skilled jobs that are going to be impacted alone. It's mid to high skilled jobs that are going to be impacted. So you're going to see paralegals impacted. You're going to see medical assistants impacted. You're going to see nurses impacted, which that'll be a net positive because we have a shortage of those. And so you're going to start seeing more skilled labor be impacted. And those two group, those two populations combined, even independently of each other as leaders, as organizations, it is our responsibility to make sure to be a, be honest about this, that people are going to lose their jobs while we're making this transition, but it's our responsibility to make sure that we provide a path for education. So all of these people can participate and their children can participate in the future economy, because especially with lower skilled workers, more often than not, their children follow in their footsteps. Hmm. And so we need to make sure that they're training for their children as well to have them be able to participate in this new economy. And it's no different than the industrial revolution of the early 1900s, right? Yes, looking 50 years, 100 years back, there's a completely different economy, many more jobs than there were. The agricultural revolution, the same thing. But there was a transition period where there were a whole lot of people out of work. There were a whole lot of people that were had no income or a little income that were probably depressed. Probably everyone wants a job. Everyone wants to be productive in society. So we need to make sure we give them the skills to do that. Absolutely. I think I love that part about being honest and transparent because I see a lot of people avoiding or sidestepping these conversations. And when they actually talk about it, they allow themselves to be overwhelmed by fear. And rather than what you said, taking leadership and saying that, yes, this will happen, but there is a plan, but there's a way forward. It's not like you are on the streets. It's there is a way forward. Yeah. So coming back to leadership, right? So if you are a senior manager, director, you have hundreds of people with you. How does your role change, right? So how can these people leverage AI, first of all, the way it is developing? And what are 
aspects of these roles, senior leadership roles, which cannot be touched or which can never be touched by AI, which are even more important now. Yeah. So going back 10 years or so, there's a Harvard Business Review article. I should remember who wrote it, but I never do. That wrote that managers will not be replaced by AI, but managers who use AI will be replaced by those who don't. Right. Or you can substitute leaders with managers too, or, or anyone for that instance. And I think that was true, but this became even more true when chat GPT was released, uh, back in November of 2022, uh, because the power of generative AI and making leaders better is incredible. I use it every day, right? So I use generative AI every day in my business for generating content, for checking things, for writing code for marketing material, for LinkedIn posts, for helping me understand articles that I don't understand, right? And so this technology is incredibly powerful and it scales me. So it makes me much more productive than I would otherwise be, which hmm. leads to two things. I get more work done at work, but it also frees up my work, frees me up to have a more of a work-life balance if I choose to. Hmm. Which is leaders, most people who are not leaders or managers don't realize the, the lack of work-life balance that, that you have once you become an executive, especially a senior executive. I can't tell you how many weekends I've worked because I had no choice, right? Regardless of what was going on, how many vacations I worked on as an executive because I had no choice. And, and so that is an incredibly powerful tool. And it can help us also be better leaders by making sure that we empower our teams to use the same tools productively for them. And this goes to education as well. Uh, one of the things that's, that I think is required of educational institutions is that they embrace technology and not run away from it. Generative AI is a new technology. They need to figure out how to incorporate that into their curriculum and help the, the, the workforce and the leaders of the future, especially in, in graduate schools and MBA programs, how do they leverage this technology to be more productive? And it can be everything from some things I said. So how do I learn? So how do I, I'm reading an article and I don't understand it. Basically you would upload that into one of the systems and ask it, what are the main concepts? Or I don't understand this part about it. Can you help me explain it? It will actually explain it to you. Or can you summarize this article for me for a fifth yeah. grade? It will do that. But then you need to put in your own words. You can't just take mm -hmm. it out of there. You can't do what that lawyer did where he was defending. I think everyone probably heard about that, where there was a lawyer who was defending going for the prosecuting a case against the airlines. And he went to chat GPT and asked it for case law, made up case law. He didn't check it. Mm. None of the case law that it presented existed. So you need to check your facts, make sure they're yeah. real and put it in your own voice. And that is a valuable use of, of, of the tool. And it's no different than using the internet. So it's no different than if I Googled something, mm. took the information, fact checked it, digested it, made it my own. It's no different. It's just a much more powerful version of that. And that is one way that you can use it. Another way, as I mentioned, is marketing content. So I have my firm, Quantum AI, that's an advisory firm. A lot of the marketing content that I used was in part generated by generative AI. A lot of the images we use are generated by generative AI. Even some of the tools that we use, like Canva, that's got a lot of generative AI in it. Adobe has Firefly. That's got a lot of generative AI. HubSpot, which is our CRM system, it'll write LinkedIn posts for you. Of course, I don't think they're, if they have the best tool for it, I end up rewriting most of it because it's too way off flowery for a Gen X, mm. a senior Gen Xer. 
And, but like even the tools that we use every day are starting to put generative AI front and center and AI front and center because they should, and yeah. they're not going to be around in six, 12 months if they don't. That's another thing. If you don't embrace this technology, you will not be here in six, 12, 24 months as an organization. Mm. It's no different than the industrial revolution, where if you did not embrace those technologies, unless you were some bespoke mm. purveyor of something where people expected handcrafted, you were going to be out of business. Yeah. Yeah. So that's wonderful. That allows leaders to get more productive in many of those, I would say, repetitive tasks or mundane tasks, and they can use generative AI to maybe let's say, let's take my last weeks of email and see if I missed out following up on somebody. And the AI can basically say, okay, you missed out reaching out to this person. You missed out following up on this thing and that. And what will that free up leaders to you? And what is that aspect of leadership, which AI can never replace? I think I wouldn't say never, but in the, in the near to midterm, there's a lot more high value work that can be done once you free up that brain space uh, to do it. So a lot of the high value work is as leaders we need to do is not necessarily, it is to a certain extent because we don't have time, but it's not just because we don't have time, it's because we don't have the brain space. We get done at the end of the day after working eight, 10, 12 hours, we're exhausted. We just want to sit down with our family or have a beer or a drink or make dinner or whatever. And we don't really have the brain capacity to do these things anymore. So by offloading a lot of these mundane tasks as you put them. So not all of them are mundane, actually. There's some highly creative tasks that yeah. are not mundane, that are engaging, but it frees you up to do other things with that information. Um, and it frees you up to actually create more value for the organization. And, and there was an interesting paper that was published or a preview of the paper that was published by the Harvard Business School last week with BCG. And it's an actual scientifically controlled experiment that BCG conducted with thousands of people across their organization in the application of generative AI. And they found that overall generative AI included increased productivity and increased the value of their products or their output of their consultants by almost 20% just by using generative AI. Now, there are different tasks that actually add a lot more value, creative tasks, you get a lot more value from the application of generative AI than you do from more qualitative or quantitative tasks. In fact, in some quantitative tasks, you actually lose value by using generative AI. But there's this great dichotomy there that if you use it, you get even more value. And so they have two classes of people. They have what they call cyborgs and centaurs, right? So a centaur is someone that is basically completely at one with the AI, right? Mm -hmm. So they use the AI uses them. It's a symbiotic, more of a symbiotic relationship. And those types of people actually get significantly more value from AI or generative AI in this case than what they call the centaurs, which are people that kind of keep it separate. They use it, they interact with it, but hmm. it's, it's not a two-way conversation. It's more of a one-way conversation. And it's almost a 2x increase in value when you fully embrace it. And so I think that is a, a very interesting paper, and I'll send it to you so you can link it in the show notes here, um, that that kind of demonstrates the type of value-added work that you can do. And this is a lot of this, the value, as I mentioned, was on creative work, which we often think of mm -hmm. the hard part about creative work is the creative part, right? The generative yeah. AI, actually, there is some creativity in how you interact with it, too. Again, 
The difference between the centaurs and the cyborg is they looked at it as a partner to them, as, as another human being, if you will. And so they were creative with it instead of talking at it and trying to get it some answers. And so the high value work is both what you do with that output, but also how you leverage the technology to get the most value, just to wring the most value out of that technology. Mm -hmm. and, and for instance, the, let's go back to the creative work. If I'm a media brand, if I'm a media outlet, like one of the big media producers, publicist, WPP, Omicron, one of those who's generating content for themselves, creative content, as well as their customers as a creative professional, which I'm not to be clear, but I understand what they have to tackle is not only do they have to make sure that creative content meets their organization's guidelines, they also have to make sure that it meets their client's brand guidelines. And they also have to make sure that it's within bounds of what's acceptable in the region or locality that it's being deployed in. And so there's a whole lot of constraints that require adjusting creative content in order for it to be deployed where it's going to be deployed. Mm. For instance, there are different regulations around what an image can look like in the U.S. versus mm -hmm. the, the Europe versus Netherlands versus the Middle East. Yeah. And you may want to have the same campaign going across all of those different geographies. But the content needs to be adjusted a little bit based on your audience mm -hmm. in the legal framework. So were you to show some of the commercials that you see in Amsterdam, right, in Saudi Arabia, not only would it go afoul of some of the laws, but you would actually offend the people you're trying to attract. Yeah. And so having a creative actually be able to focusing on customizing content for that let alone all the myriad of channels that are, mm. you can deliver this through, whether it's TikTok or Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or just a, a TV ad, right? This frees up the creative population to do those things yeah. more productively, actually do something that AI can't yet do today. Yeah. And before we wrap up, I want to talk about the risks or the gray area, right? Because what stops, let's say, if I am a leader in an organization, what stops me from taking all the emails which uh, everybody in my team has sent me over the last few months or a, or a year and feed it to an AI and say, find out the people who are optimistic or who are high potential or find out the people who are not aligned to my values because then that can maybe heighten the biases or already force me to look uh, in a narrow way. And especially now, like we are developing uh, like intranets of AIs like which are not even public and we have no control over or mechanisms to like the quality of those AIs. Yeah. So, so I think there's actually more pressing issues than, than what mm. you described or even than the, the doomsday things we hear in, in the media. I think the, the more pressing issue is, or issues are, are really three things. One is bias. Bias is a slippery slope. What we see as bias in, in the West is fundamentally different than what is viewed as bias in the Middle East, in Asia, in Africa, in South America. And so we need to be sure that as Western societies, we don't try to impose our view of biases on the rest of the world. It's not our place as technologists. So that's one thing. Related to that is all of this hate, misogyny, things we see in these models, that is a mirror on society because it's learning from the data that exists on the internet. And that is the math and the, and the computer science that are at the heart of AI are not biased. It's learning from the data, which the data is representation of us. So we need to behave better. 
So that's one risk is the West imposing its, its view of bias on the rest of the world. Related to is this concept of the digital divide, right? So for the most part, we think about that as north of the equator and south of the equator, and that's the global digital divide. And we need to make sure that when we're building AI systems specifically, that not only is it accessible to all around the world, but it's also inclusive to all around the world, which relates to the topic I just said about definitions of, of biases. And to do that, we need to make sure that those people are represented in the construction of these models, especially these large scale commodity models, which quite frankly, isn't happening today. Hmm. The closest thing there, there's one instance where it did, which is an open source project called by, by a group called big science, which is a global open source project. They make a model called bloom. That's the only one of these models that I know that was even remotely inclusive globally. Um, outside of that, the only inclusivity we saw was open AI paying Nigerians less than $2 an hour to, to do low skilled work. Mm. And then the third challenge that we are watch out we have is the socioeconomic divide, similar to the global divide, there are haves and have nots. So except the ha it's not haves and have nots, it's access and no access or influence and no influence. And so as you get into lower socioeconomical groups, whatever they are in, in the U.S., it's tend to be black and brown populations or, and, and low income populations in parts of India, it's caste or school systems that, mm -hmm. that create this. And so how do we make sure much like we do with the global digital divide that we're inclusive of those populations and bringing them along with us? Because the challenge with not doing those last is we run the risk of creating a tremendous amount of social strife, a tremendous amount of backlash to all this change, because we are excluding a large part of the world, whether it's outside of the West and, and some parts of the, the Eastern uh, globe, north, basically outside of the Northern hemisphere, if you will. Uh, and even within those Northern hemisphere populations, there's diverse populations in those groups that would not participate if we're not intentional about it. And that will create strife and more distance between those groups, which is not a good thing. And that's leading, in my opinion, that's leading to a lot of the populism we're seeing and nationalism we're seeing around the world. And what's the way out? This looks like a trap. No, it's not a trap. The way out is to be very intentional about how you're building these systems, who you're including these systems. And there are tremendous technology hubs in Africa, in South America, in Southeast Asia that are not being taken advantage of and by taking advantage of included in these mm -hmm. conversations. There are tremendously intelligent people in these socioeconomical, economically disadvantaged communities that we are not tapping into. And it's because it's not easy that we're not doing it. It doesn't just yeah. happen. You don't just put a job posting out there mm -hmm. and someone from Kenya applies to it in, if it's in the US or if it's in New York or yeah. in Amsterdam. Right. Yeah. You need to be very intentional. You need to go to that locality or that group and you need to actively solicit them and encourage them and make sure the job descriptions and the postings are inclusive to them, that they can see themselves in it. Hmm. And so it, it takes work is why it's not happening today. It's not an impossible situation. It just takes effort. Yeah. And honestly, the people that are leading these, these big industries and these big opportunities are not taking the effort they need to, are not yeah. making priority. If they're even talking about it all, it's just lip service, in my opinion. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Seth, for sharing your journey and also towards the end, touching upon like these critical issues, which we all face now as leaders, but also just as professionals. 
as well. Yeah. And it's, as you said, this in the last year, this change has been so sudden uh, and it has put a lot of people into anxiety. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of opportunities and there, there's a way out, even if it doesn't appear so sometimes. Yeah. So thank you for yeah. doing that. Thank you for being on the show. And before we end, right, anybody who is listening, what is the best way for them to reach out to you, find out more about you or any of these ideas that we were talking about? Yeah, so they can go to my website, drsethdobrin.com, or they can look me up on LinkedIn at sdobrin on LinkedIn, or just Seth Dobrin should, should come up. I think there's only three of us in the world, so you'll, you should find one of us. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's always good to have a name that uh, like you have only three of you. Yeah, but once again, thank you for everything. And as we end, I would like to wish you all the best for everything that lies ahead. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Samit. It was great talking to you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Choosing Leadership with Sumit Gupta. I choose leadership every time I record this podcast. And I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction. Not just for yourself, but for everybody around you. If you got something out of this episode, would you share this episode on social media? And if you know somebody who would be a great guest, can you tag them on social media to let them know about the show? And if you are a leader who wants to acknowledge how far you have come and have big dreams for the future, please reach out to me to be a guest on this podcast. And I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. This is what I do most naturally, to lovingly and gently provoke you, to help you see your own light, to help you see what you are already capable of. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and it means a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to deployyourself.com and subscribe to my newsletter or follow me on LinkedIn. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality. And I want to thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved and you matter. This is Sumit. Until next time, keep choosing leadership.